Hello and welcome to Inside Writing, the Faber Academy podcast. My name is George Miller, and this is the second in a new series of podcasts recorded at the Faber Academy on the fourth floor of Faber's offices in the heart of Bloomsbury. If you're a writer struggling to get started, overcome a particular hurdle, or reach the finishing line with your novel, these podcasts are for you. We hope these conversations with published writers and editors who teach on the Academy's courses will give you practical advice, suggestions for reading, and maybe a dash of inspiration to help you make progress. And just as important, we hope they'll make entertaining listening, and remind you that all writers come up against obstacles from time to time. In each podcast, we'll tackle a theme chosen by one of my guests, and focus the discussion around a text they've selected. My guests in this programme are Richard Skinner, novelist and director of the Faber Academy's fiction programme, and Steve Watson, who writes under the name of S.J. Watson, and is the author of the international bestseller, Before I Go to Sleep. He's also a graduate of the very first Faber Academy novel writing course. Richard chose Point of View as a subject for the main discussion of this programme, and a short story by Emily Perkins called Early Morning Gutter Relationship to illustrate it. I began our conversation, though, by asking my guests about beginnings. Did they have any tips for getting a project started? For me, um, thinking about a novel and getting to the point where I'm, I'm thinking about starting a novel takes a long time. I, I tend to spend a lot of time thinking it through and sort of amassing a, a sort of in, enough ammo almost to start. I think if you start too early, I think it, it can be quite damaging. And I think you you should only really start when you're you're really full and ready to go, and the reservoir is sort of filled up. I do just start with the first sentence, and I have done on the four novels that I've written. It hasn't been any other way so far. It could be different in future. Maybe it should be different. Maybe I should try something else, you know. But um, I'm quite good at beginnings because, as I say, if, if you think it through really a lot beforehand, I think you can gain a confidence about how to begin. Does the first sentence usually remain more or less in the form in which it goes down on day one? It has done so far, yeah. Surprisingly, I think beginnings and first sentences in particular are really important. I think they should really open with a bang. They should embody, in some sense, what the novel's about, actually. And I tend to get a good handle on that because of the thinking I do before. And I think if, if you're not ready and just start, I think you can get into all sorts of problems. So the first sentence is in your mind before you sit down on, on that first day. It's, it's, it's come together, as you were saying, from, from sort of ammo that you've amassed, and then you're ready to commit it to the screen. Well, sort of. <laughs> I mean, I think um, I may not know exactly what the first sentence is going to be when I start, but it's probably there or thereabouts in my mind, yeah. Steve, what about you? How, how do you find beginnings? With Before I Go to Sleep, certainly it was very instinctive. I think Before I Go to Sleep began with an image. And so all the things that you, you know, have to think about, you know, which tense you want to write in, what voice to kind of use, what point of view, they seem very obvious to me. There didn't seem to be any sort of decision to be made with that book. Whereas with the book I'm writing now, I've had to take it much more slowly. It didn't present itself to me, I suppose, in quite such an obvious way. But as Richard said, I've kind of, it's the same idea of sort of sitting there and waiting for the momentum to build and the pressure to build almost, so you, you find that you can't not write it anymore. I've had to sort of stop myself from uh, sitting at the computer and, until I've really kind of not been able to do anything else. 
I don't have the same the same experience with first lines though. I have to write my first line knowing I'm probably going to change it. And before I go to sleep, started it with a totally different sort of scene, which only in retrospect, well, when I came to the sort of fairly early edit, I realised that was just not where the book starts. So I have to I have to sort of take the pressure off myself with first lines and write them knowing that they're going to change. Now, Richard, as a theme for this podcast, you selected point of view. And before we began, you were talking about sometimes writers becoming, or new writers becoming, a little bit confused about the difference between voice and point of view. So maybe you could sketch out really what you've got in your sights when you talk about point of view. It sounds kind of obvious when we talk about it like this, but but it took me a long time, certainly as a new writer, to to feel the difference between point of view and voice. And I try to pass that on. And I think it's one of those terms in in sort of fiction that seems quite obvious but actually when you talk about it it can feel more slippery than it actually is and I think basically the difference is that point of view is about what you see and voice is about what you hear in the text and often I think people think that's the same thing but it's not because of course your narrator can be someone who's not in the story so how they tell the story is is different from what characters are seeing in it you know so it's really interesting uh, I think because it, it brings up all of the issues between uh, about um, narrators and h- how to narrate a story are you going to choose a character one of your characters to narrate the story or, or if so whom uh, or, or if not who is going to narrate the story and then you have to make decisions about well how much are they going to be able to see and, and in what voice are they going to tell the story it's something that we talk about a lot in the Faber Academy, the, this issue of narrators and who's going to narrate your story and why and how. And it offers a, a huge range of possibilities, doesn't it? Because the point of view need not be fixed. It can be, it can be ambiguous. It can be shifting. Absolutely. Well, you know, point of view, of, of course, then you sort of get into unreliable narration and, and um, the beautiful play that you can have with that. People like um, Nabokov did fantastically well with, with Lolita and countless others as well. So so not only do you can you choose from whose point of view you're going to tell the story, but you can also play with the uh, amount of honesty that they're giving in that role. But it's all a role. You know, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's about playing a role. And you can have great joy as a writer in, in playing with that role-playing, if you see what I mean, which Nabokov did in Lolita. I mean, the whole thing is just a, a great big performance of Humbert Humbert's, you know, in, in the telling of his own story. It's fantastic. Steve, when you began your course at the Faber Academy, was Point of View one of the things on your mental checklist that you kind of wanted to get to grips with to, to think about? Or did you already know where you were going in, in terms of the, the story you wanted to tell from, from the point of view of, of Point of View? I suppose it was on my mental checklist, but no more or less than everything else was. <laughs> the difference between point of view and voice and, and the interplay between them was something I hadn't really thought about in any great detail, I suppose, until I started the course and started writing before I go to sleep. And then sort of I did realise how the voice is very much influenced by your narrator. And in my case, especially because the state of the frame of mind that she would be in and, and her kind of day to day state would so much influence influence her voice and you know and what she believed about the world would change her truth if you like so for, even from one day to the next within the book, my character's point of view would change or her or her voice would change i suppose you know she could say say 
different things that were contradictory and yet believe them both. For people who haven't read your book, maybe you could just say why that is, what, what the particular circumstances of the story are that, that make point of view so important to it. Well, I, I decided to set myself a ridiculously compl- complicated uh, task of writing a book in the first person about a woman who essentially has no memory. Uh, my character, Christine, can remember things for until she sleeps, basically. So she can't form any new memories or can't retain them, rather, for more than a few hours. And because the book is set over a time period of a few weeks, essentially every day she has to relearn her own past. And because it's written in the first person, the reader is very, uh, me, I, I, first of all, the writer, and, and the reader is very much in her head. And so as she, as she learns her truth, if you like, and has her story changes and she learns more about the situation that she's in, what she believes about the world will change as well. And that therefore means that obviously the narration will change. So it was a tricky thing to, to sort of write, but also very uh, interesting <laughs> for me to do, to sort of, um, because I had to be totally in her head, which I think, especially with first-person narration, you have to be anyway. You're kind of playing a character as you write, and you know you have to try and. Uh, and this is why voice and point of view are so closely linked. I think because you, you you are having to try and see the world through somebody else's eyes and try and picture. You know, if you're describing a room or a situation, you're seeing it through their eyes, not through your eyes as as a writer, but through your character's eyes. In a way, for me, those kind of decisions were easy, actually, because I want, I'd very, it would have been a totally different book to have written it from anybody else's perspective. It had to be in the first person, or else, or else it would have been, the, the whole feel of the book would be different. And everything I wanted to achieve around, around you know, an unreliable narrator and things like that, although I didn't consciously think I want to write a book with an unreliable, an, an unreliable narrator, those things did appeal to me once I started writing it. So all those decisions were actually very easy. If the decisions were easy, was it easy or was it difficult to actually get, to get the voice and the point of view to to work in a way that you, you felt happy with? I had the the, central, the the opening image for the book, which is of my character looking in, in the mirror. One morning, that came to me, and I think I started writing it sort of three or four days later. I didn't spend weeks sort of thinking about character and plot and things like that, which was a decision that I sort of um, made. I didn't spend a long time on the preparatory work, so a lot of that work was happening on the page, if you like. I was trying things out. I was writing long scenes sometimes which weren't working for whatever reason and, and eventually came out and, and I took out of the book. In terms of getting the voice right, I think I... In a funny way, my, my main character, Christine, her voice came to me quite, quite early on and, and felt quite real. My character felt quite real, which I think was probably kind of luck, actually, in a way. So I, could, I then felt I could write her, her convincingly. It was the other characters which, came, which took a little bit more work, actually, I, I suppose. But yeah, it was, it was through the writing of the book that I came to sort of learn about, uh, about those sort of issues of, around point of view and voice and character. Now, Richard, you selected a, a short story to, to talk a little bit about in this podcast by Emily Perkins called Early Morning Gutter Relationship. And this is one that you, you use in, in the course. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about why you think it's interesting to, to look at this particular piece. Yeah, um, well, this piece I, I first read, it was uh, collected in a, a one of those new writing anthologies that the, um, the British Council used to put out. And um, I read it and I was really blown away by it. And, and I didn't quite know why I was blown away by it. And I read it again and again. And um, the reason I find it so interesting is because it really addresses this whole issue of, of point of view and what we're discussing. So basically the story is that, uh, that, that uh, a babysitter arrives at the flat of a couple and she's going to look after the couple's children for an evening whilst the couple go out to celebrate their wedding anniversary. And that's indeed what happens. And the couple go out, 
but they they end up sort of getting split up during the course of the evening and they end up spending that evening sort of um, apart and indeed the the woman ends up being on her own until dawn the next day so the story is sort of split three ways and we actually do see the story from the points of view of the babysitter the husband and the wife and not only that i think the story for the first time really introduced me to this idea of free and direct style which is something i go on and on about during the course because it's just one of fiction's least known secrets and it's one of its unsung jewels it's it's something that's been around since since jane austen and, and flaubert so it's nothing new but and it it's something that a lot of writers do just automatically and quite naturally but i find it interesting on the course to actually highlight it and draw attention to it and actually look at what it is and it is a way of of sort of fusing first and third persons in fiction so free and direct style is something that can only exist in third person fiction whether it be a, a novel or, or or short story but it's just a way of dipping in and out of characters consciousnesses briefly that's the thing very briefly and it's it's capturing their the thoughts that they're having to themselves in their own minds and it's it's just a beautiful way of flattening that distance for the reader between the narrator and the character when it's in third person so you 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 you're immediately in the character's head for a split second and it's it's a wonderful way of of achieving intimacy in the third person which which by definition you don't normally have and emily perkins's story is is a, a fantastic example of that whether or not you like the story technically it's superb and she uses it beautifully so it's a way of dipping into some character's consciousness and also doing it subtly so you don't have to kind of advertise the fact that this is a the thought of a character but you're blending it in with the the other narrative voice Absolutely yeah so so free and direct style means that there are no tags you know there's no um he thinks he thought or she wondered you know um she remembered it's just the thought itself without any uh, narratorial uh, interference and and you hardly notice that you are dipping in and out so it's extremely subtle and blends very well in in the fabric of the narrative i suppose you sometimes don't know if you are it can sort of inhabit a, a middle ground where you think well is this is this the narrator speaking or is this a little flash of the consciousness of the character steve do you do you remember encountering this particular story when you were on the course um Funnily enough, not really. I, I remember the exercise we did around it more than I remember the story because I do remember we all got very confused by free and direct style and we were all very worried about it and whether we could spot it and whether we knew how to use it and what it really was. And then actually, it sort of for me anyway, and I think for the rest of my for my colleagues, it just kind of clicked when we sort of just realised it is just that, that momentary flash when you just go into somebody's head and then come back out again and. And I relaxed and thought, okay. And I think it's one of those odd things that I think, you know, you can read, you can read free and direct style and, you, and probably even use it without really knowing that's what you're doing. I think it shows a real sort of confidence. It really makes you feel you're in the hands of a confident writer if they, when they can do it, when it's done well. So I don't really, really remember the story, but I do remember taking it apart. And, and I think we had to underline all the occurrences of free and direct style. And if I remember rightly, there were some arguments about whether, is that or not? I'm not Absolutely. quite sure. I mean, and presumably that's, a, that's, that's proof it's being done well if there are arguments. Yes, and, and it's not black and white, you know. Um, there was a lot of discussion about, well, is this free and direct style? Is, is, the litmus test is basically, if, if you say it out aloud, mm. does it sound like something that you would naturally say to yourself when you're on your own? And usually the more colloquial something is, the more natural it sounds. 
But that's the litmus test, really. And and if it doesn't sound like something that someone would would naturally say to themselves, it probably means that it's the narrator reporting what a mm. character's thinking rather than actually the, th- the the character's thoughts themselves. So I think that's the litmus test. I mean, for example, the, the narrator. I, I started doing the exercises homework, you know, underlying it. <laughs> the, the character Rachel, who's, who's the babysitter and the friend, turns up on the doorstep, and the first line simply describes her pressing the buzzer. But then the second, the third line says, "It was only a house after all, not, not a penthouse suite." And there we're kind of getting a little glimpse of, of not a, a factual description, but a sense of her kind of animosity, her resentment, her feelings about this couple. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's free and direct style. So. How do you then go from from recognizing it, from underlining it? How do you how do you do you have any tips for writers who then perhaps want to to make use of it and experiment experiment with it in their own writing? What would be a good way to practice, as it were? What what we do on the course, uh, which is a useful exercise, is is um, a man gets off a bus and trips, and when he looks up, there's a woman looking at him, smiling. And so the exercise is, well, you can, you know, choose who you're going to write that scene from, from whose point of view you're going to write that scene, and sort of write it and include a couple of moments of free and direct style um, and read it out and see if someone else can spot the bits of free and direct style. So, so it should be not too obvious, but not too hidden so that, you know, um, it's discernible and yet still subtle. Richard, you mentioned something interesting before we, we, we began talking for the podcast about a piece of advice from Kazuo Ishiguro. I thought that was interesting. Maybe you could um, share that with listeners. He came in to, to speak to the Faber Academy students in December 2010, and it was a wonderful session, and um, I learned a lot from it, and I, and I know that the students did as well. You know, I think his novels, his six novels, are all fantastic lessons in narration, particularly unreliable narration. And the tip that you mentioned that, that he, he talked about that day was that uh, he, he told us that before he starts writing his story, he actually kind of auditions each of his characters for the role of narrator, which I thought was amazing. I, I absolutely thought that was incredible. To have the patience and the ability to be able to go through one by one, you know, Stevens the butler, Miss Kenton, maybe one of the underbutlers, or, or maybe even um, the lord of the manor, and so on, and to work out how how the book would change if it was told from that person's point of view. What kind of a book would it be if it was told from that? I thought it was astonishing, and perhaps that's why it takes him so long to write his novels. And just imagine if Remains of the Day was written from the point of view of Miss Kenton, and, and how different that would make that book. She has all of the emotional articulacy that Stevens doesn't. So the pleasures of the book, as he was writing it, if he was telling it from her point of view, would have to come from completely different areas. It would have to be maybe a melodrama or romance, or it would be a completely different kind of book, you know, and I thought that was incredible. He also talked about um, the Sherlock Holmes short stories as an example of, of that. And he said, well, imagine those stories written from the point of view of Holmes. That just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work because He's such an intelligent uh, man that he would just be disdainful and um, cynical and impatient with with everyone else, not keeping up with his methods of deduction. But the very fact that that they're written from Watson's point of view, who is our point of view, really, and we are in the dark as Watson is in the dark all the way through, we learn 
about the methods of deduction as Watson does. That, and that's the whole point of the stories. That's their beauty. They just wouldn't have worked from anyone else's point of view. So that was, for me, an absolute masterclass in, in the whole idea of point of view, who to choose as your narrator. Wonderful. So even if um, imagining the story from every character's point of view is a council of perfection, nonetheless, it's probably a very good exercise for any writer to think, well, what happens if we, if we shift the, the camera to here or we shift the viewpoint or we mm. see it through someone else's eyes because it opens up possibilities. Even you don't use all of them. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I was reading um, the other day, um, so we had her talking about writing notes on a scandal and she was saying that she'd, first of all, drafted the book from the point of view of the teacher who has the affair and it didn't really work. And then she tried it with an um, omniscient narrator and didn't really work. And she said it was quite late, late on in the process where she, this idea came to her of narrating from another teacher's point of view. And then the whole book sort of fell into place and this other teacher became kind of quite a sort of major character and quite an influence in the book. And that's quite an interesting sort of thing to remember actually that sometimes problems you may be having might be due to the fact you're looking at the story from the wrong person's point or, or, or not the right person's point of view and um, just shifting that sort of camera angle if you like and give you a whole new open up a whole new seam of, of interesting uh, richness so it can be the critical decision it can be the break breakthrough moment when you decide to shift your narrator and, and tell it from a different point of view oh absolutely i mean i think you know there are you know i don't know steve maybe sort of four five six crucial decisions you have to make about you know, where you're going to start, at what point are you going to start your story, um, who's going to tell it, where to end it, how much time is going to elapse, all, the, all of those things. But point of view, yeah, I, I think it's, it's absolutely crucial. Because it gives you the consciousness, it gives you the language, it gives you the, de- I suppose, it gives mm. you the decisions about what's important, the order in which you tell things, it all, it's all bound up with that, isn't it? It can be a tricky decision because, you know, you need to have to think about how much you're going to need to see things from different people's points of view, perhaps. So I mean, even if you're looking at, okay, I want to write this in the third person, you're going to talk about a very tight third person where you're really only following you know, one person's story, or actually you're going to go between different narrators. You know, you have to have consistency. So I think you have to kind of establish those sort of rules very early on. Otherwise, sort of, it feels like I think you're, you're sort of cheating the reader, if you like. If suddenly, you, you know, three quarters of the way into the book, you introduce another another perspective just because you happen to need to do that at the time so those are the kind of decisions you need to make very early on but you know if you're perhaps not familiar you're not fully familiar with the story you want to tell that can be a difficult decision to make I mean I guess you sometimes can paint yourself into a corner with a decision that you make and you know as you were saying with Zoe Heller you then have to re- sort of back up and, and realize that you, you're gonna have to shift you're gonna have to undo a lot of what you've already done in order to get where you want to go mm. yeah absolutely yeah I mean, so far, I've written almost exclusively in the first person. So those are kind of decisions. I mean, that's a decision I make, though, and and I'm aware that it's going to be very restrictive. There are certain things you can't do or or you have to find ways of doing which some people might perceive as being artificial. Um, I suppose I'm talking specifically about allowing a consciousness which is not your main characters or or, or information to be divulged to the reader which your character may not know. I mean, that that becomes very tricky, if not impossible, if you're writing exclusively in the first person. And yet sometimes you desperately want to do it, don't you? Mm. Because the narrative requires it. How do you cope with that? Do you have any techniques or tips for coping with that? I think each story will find its own way. If you do need, you know, you can have characters finding letters, I suppose, and things like that. It's just, it's just making those sort of things believable. You know, I suppose in Before I Go to Sleep, I have my character being given a letter 
that another character had written, which just sort of did allow me to sort of drop in other other aspects of the story and, and feed the reader, if you like, other pieces of information. But that makes it sound like a very cynical decision. It wasn't really. It was totally appropriate. It felt totally appropriate for that letter to be delivered when it was being delivered. So there are ways of doing it, but I suppose each story will, will find its own sort of path. My first novel, The Red Dancer, was told from multiple points of view, and and um, that was the point, you know, that that everyone had a a take on Matahari, and who knew what the truth was, and she didn't have her own voice, and she she didn't have the opportunity to give her side of the story. That was the point of the novel. But my my um, the, the two short novels that are that are coming out in January uh, with Faber are both written in the first person. And I found I had a tremendous sense of kind of freedom when I switched from that third person sort of multiple point of view to the first person. I just felt like I'd just sort of run into a field of, you know, buttercups and I was able to run around freely. It was amazing because I'd never really had the confidence to tackle first person before then. My, I, I guess my natural inclination when I first started writing was to do third person. And uh, when I switched to first person... I just found it incredibly liberating. So it's going to be interesting for you, Steve, if you switch to third person and you know, see what, what it feels like. It will be interesting. <laughs> no, it's something, I, it's something I definitely want to do, uh, and, and I'm sure I will do it at some point, when uh, you know, I want to write the story that lends itself to third person. I think every, I think every story, you can't go into it thinking, right, I'm, this is going to be mm. first person or third person. It's going to be written, you know, written from this point. It just it'll come out and, and a lot of people do switch points of view you know very early on realizing they've just got it wrong and I, I often think that the first person is great for intimacy you can gain a great great deal of intimacy with the character but you lose the perspective obviously because mm. you're locked into that point of view whereas third person is is the opposite you know it's what you lack in intim- intimacy you gain in perspective so it's great for sort of thrillers and mm. you know sort of epics and things that are on a on a, on a larger scale Whereas first person is perhaps better for confessional narratives or psychological thrillers like yours or books to do with identity or, or confidence tricks or juggling acts, you mm. know. It's so, a bit like camera lenses then. There are some lenses yeah. which are good for close-up and some which are better Absolutely. for, you know, yeah. group scenes. I mean, Steve, you were saying you can't trick the reader by bringing in a new narrator two-thirds mm. of the way through. Are there particular problems associated with multiple points of view? apart from just the organisational ones? I think I find um, one of the things that, that a lot of new writers do, which, which I think causes problems, is that they tend to head hop. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can jump around from person to person, character to character. And very often, in fact, usually most of the time, the voice is the same throughout. So there's no differentiation between these characters. It's just that we're suddenly hopping from one head to another. And it's terribly disorientating for the reader. So, you know, three, four narrators in one book, I think it's pretty hard to pull off and make it sort of winnable, you know, make it like a, a, a real treat to read mm. and make it a, a different experience from narrator to narrator, almost like you're writing four books at once, you know. It's very hard to do, and and so what I say to to new writers who are doing that is: do you, do you do you really need four narrators? Do you really you know think about it? And usually nine times out of ten, you don't. One certainly, maybe two, will do the job just as well, and it just makes it a lot easier. 
for new writers. I mean, it's hard enough to write a novel, so give yourself as many breaks as possible. You know, make, don't make it harder than you need to. And you know, doing a multi-perspective, multi-vocal novel is pretty hard. Yeah, I, I always think it's a bad sign when I have to, in a multi-vocal novel, have to keep checking which narrator because the voices are too too similar, basically, and that's that's mm. obviously a danger. You know, all these rules can be broken now. I think you know there are some there are lots of examples of books that do have multiple narrators and and you know fly between and do the head hopping that we we're just talking about. But I think it's just it has to be done with confidence, I suppose. Firstly, and secondly, I think a book a novel has to have its internal rules which are consistent and that the reader can then can on some level kind of grasp and then you can do what you like I think if you can do that yeah and I, I totally uh, agree with that I think William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying is a great great novel which is told from I think it's 13 or 14 different people's point of view even more audacious is My Name is Red by uh, Ohan Pamuk uh, and I think there are 21 narrators in there um, some of whom are colours Mm. Hence the name, my my name is Red. But it's beautifully done, and and I mean, I always sort of think of it as coming down to in, intentionality. You know, what do you intend to do? Mm. Because a lot of new writers fall back on the idea of using multiple points of view because they think it's really great. You know, think it's really clever and sexy and rock and roll. But actually, you can tell the story much better um, if if you rein back on that. But those guys, you know, William Faulkner and Orhan Pamuk, you know, they're absolutely fantastic mm. writers and they learned their trade and, and they wrote many novels before before those because it's hard to do. And so absolutely do whatever you like, mm. but make sure it's what you intend to do and you're, you know what you're doing when you go about doing it. I think that's the key for me. My thanks to my guests, Richard Skinner and Steve Watson. You can find out more about them and the Faber Academy by visiting faberacademy.co.uk and you can follow the Academy on Twitter, at Faber Academy. I hope you'll join me again soon for the next Inside Writing podcast and until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.